Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. If you would, um, we have got a lot to cover. So if you just kind of reach up and take the seatbelt and kind of reach down and buckle it in. Uh, I'm going to have to, this is one of those weeks I need to put my foot on the gas and we're going to move pretty quickly through an awful lot of stuff, but I think it's good. We actually, uh, this year, as, as we just talked about, are celebrating our fifth anniversary. And as we have our fifth anniversary, we're going to go back to a sermon series we actually preached before we were officially a church. When we were a core group, when we were just were a handful or a few dozen people gathering and talking about the idea of becoming a church or launching a church or planting a church, um, we circled up and looked through the first six chapters of the book of Daniel. And so we're gonna go back and work through that sermon series again, really is just a way to remind us of our roots, to remind us of what God put on our heart, to remind us of the ways in which God directed our paths early in those early days and wants to continue to do so. And really what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at how to live out our faith in challenging times and in an unbelieving, in what is oftentimes what we find to be an unbelieving world. And then as I said in those days, I'll say again, this, a lot of this uh, kind of milieu really comes from a guy named Tim Keller. And he's kind of a church planning guru. When you get to church history 100 years from now, I think we're still gonna be talking about the way in which he influenced this church planting movement. Uh, he, he's kind of a Yoda to all us guys that went out and started churches. So some of this is gonna, is gonna lean on some of the stuff he has said, but we're gonna be in Daniel chapter, or Daniel 1 through 6 over the next six weeks. But in order to do that, we really need to understand, or in order to understand Daniel and what's happening there, we really need to step back and understand really the whole context in which that whole scenario is taking place. And so we're gonna take one week and we're just gonna do an overview this week. And I wanna set the stage for you for what happens with Daniel and his friends and how God works as they live in this place called Babylon in a way in which they, so that we can really fully appreciate both their lives and the, the, the lessons we can glean, but also the challenges they're gonna present to us. And so what we're gonna see is that we need to realistically recognize the changing and challenging times in which we live. And we need to chart a course and be intentional about our calling to live in relation to our world. So just like you expect, we're gonna be doing a book, a series on Daniel. So what I need you to do is I need you to turn to Jeremiah. Um, we're gonna look at Jeremiah 29 today. When you open up the book of Daniel, let me set the stage of Daniel for you. When, when Daniel starts, it says that, that this is, uh, this is a, a story or a book about the, the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, a king of Babylon, and the reality that Daniel and many other ex, uh, Israelites have been exiled out of the, the, the promised land and they've been moved to a new land called Babylon and they're living there in exile. Now, if you were from Jewish heritage or if you're familiar with the Old Testament, that should never happen. That is something that would be appalling to them. It would be completely unexpected because God had given them the promised land and it took them a wandering long route to get there, but they had set up shop there and God had given them a kingdom and said, as long as you take care of your business, you're gonna have peace and, and you're going to flourish in the land. But what we see 
is that they have run up against some hard times. In fact, what we saw in Moses and again in Deuteronomy in the Old Testament was God promised them through a covenant relationship with them that as long as they obeyed with him and walked with him, he would take care of them and they would thrive within the land. But if they disobeyed, if they rejected him, if they walked away from him, that eventually they would stumble and they would face exile. And that's what has happened. Assyria in 722 BC began to rise up and the, the Israelite nation, the people of God became divided. And you had the Northern tribes that were called Israel and the Southern tribes that were called Judah. In the midst of this diversity, Assyria took over the Northern tribes of, of the people of God and, and exiled them. But then the Southern tribes uh, were allowed to remain free as long as they would be willing to pay tribute to Assyria. And so they were free with a cost but they were still disobedient. Two weeks ago, we looked at Josiah. Josiah was the last good king of the Southern tribes that we call Judah in, in the Old Testament. Now, whenever they began to, to, uh, to run away from the Lord, what we saw was that the Southern tribes um, again, eventually also got themselves in trouble. Uh, Assyria was, was kind of ruling in that region for a season, but then a new empire, the Babylonian empire emerged on the scene. And as they rose up, they took over Assyria and they took over the Southern tribes of the people of God. And so now the Northern tribes have been exiled. The Southern tribes have now been taken over. And when Babylonia moves in, they go into the temple of the people of God in Jerusalem, or the, the temple of the people of God, and they take all the treasures, they take all the wealth, they take the beautiful good things that God had provided for the people that were part of their worship and, and took them back home to Babylon. But they also took many of the wealthy of the society, many of the kind of intellectual elites from the society and said, we're gonna take you back to Babylon too. So now you've got this nation, part of whom's been exiled to Babylon, part of whom still lives there in the, the nation well, Israelites oftentimes do what we often do, which is when things get tough, we begin to fight like the world fights. And they decide, man, maybe, maybe we can do a workaround. We can find a, a way out of this mess. And so they form an alliance with Egypt and think maybe Egypt will come to our rescue. Instead of running to God and asking him for help, they run to another nation and say, hey, would you help us to, to, to fight off Assyria or fight off Babylon? And what happens is it, it kind of ticks Babylon off. And so Babylon comes in and says, enough. They, uh, Egypt is unable to help. Babylon takes over completely in, uh, in the southern nation and exiles much more, really exiles the entire professional class of Judah. Exiles, takes 10,000 military officers, takes all the artists, takes all the craftsmen, takes all the professionals, all the educated people, and says, you're going back to Babylon with us. And then they begin to go through a process of, of re-education. And so they began to take them through a training program and said, we want to assimilate you and make you just like us so that your distinctiveness as the people of God dissipates and you begin to blend in and look a lot like us as a people. And you begin to take on Babylonian beliefs and values and systems. So as we think about this, I think it's important for us to realize that as a part of this process, it can be confusing for us in challenging times to know exactly how it is we're to relate to the world. What is our relationship to those around us when everything begins to change, when things begin to shift? And in tough times, we tend to do what the Israelites did, which is we tend to fight like the world fights. It's like, okay, you wanna play that game? Well, let's go toe to toe. And we begin to fight back. 
But what you see is that God has a different approach for Daniel in the lives of his friends. And in fact, God has a better approach for them. Not easier, but better. Not easier, but better. And in order for us to embrace the better way of relating to our world, and we're gonna have to make a decision and set our course. That's what God's people had to do in the time of Daniel, but it's also what we have to do. See, Daniel lived in challenging times. In fact, they, they were used to a world in which everything was sort of monolithic. They, they, everyone had the same background, the same ethnic heritage, the same religious heritage, the same religious history. And now they've all of a sudden been exiled and moved into a world where there's all kinds of diversity, where there's differences of opinion, differences of morality, differences of worship, different languages, different dress, different patterns of eating. And all of these things felt very disruptive and uncomfortable to the people of Israel as they would to us as well. But we need to realize, I think, that our world's changed a lot too. We don't live in a monolithic day where everything, everyone thinks and lives and acts the same. But there's some diversity that's, that's come into our world as well. In fact, as we think about the rapidly changing world, just some statistics for you. Among those, uh, I think, you know, you've probably heard a lot of the stats. And man, I could, I could roll out stats forever. Those are easy articles to find. And you've probably seen plenty of them too, but let me just share a couple with you. Among those born after 1996, more people identify as agnostic or non-religious than in any generation ever. Nine out of 10 say the church is too judgmental. 85% say it's hypocritical. In today's public conversation, the church has been relegated to the sidelines. We have really lost our influence. And in surveys where people are, are allowed to check a box that says, what are your beliefs? Do you believe Christianity or Islam or Hinduism or any other belief? And then there's the box down at the bottom that says none. More people in today's time than in any time in human history check the box none, meaning I have no religious connection, affiliation, preference, or care in the world. And so our times have really changed. And for us, this can feel a little bit intimidating. When you think about um, our world, it's why we've begun to call this the post-Christian world. And what do I mean by post-Christian? When you think about the, the trajectory of, of history, at least in the West, in Europe and in the Americas, you're really talking about Western history developing. And for about a thousand years, there was a time that we called Christendom. What Christendom really meant was that the, the overarching preference, the overarching or most influential uh, cultural uh, aspect within our world was identified with Christianity. And so the, this Christendom phrase really means that it was a Christian world. And we understood that that was the predominant influence. And so whenever, what the church was really good at was it was Christianizing its people. And so we would teach the language and the ideas and the values of that came out of scripture, but we wouldn't always apply them perfectly. And so the church began to, or had great influence within that time. And so there was an assumption that maybe that would always be the case. But what we began to see is that the church sometimes made false promises, that the church sometimes aligned themselves with, with, with power plays and with, uh, with, with bigotry and with other things that began to cause the church to lose credibility. And so some of the false promises that the church made that really did not come out of scripture but came out of other cultural norm, norms began to get mixed and it caused people to begin to take a step back and say, you know what, if some of this is corrupt, how much of it is corrupt and where does the corruption stop? And so people began to question what it was that, the church, or that Christianity was really all about. 
Now, for the last 200 years, what we've seen is a pretty rapid demise or decline of the influence of the church. That philosophically, things began, the, the undergirding foundations began to have cracks and science began to, to poke and to prod at different things. And we began to find these places where people began to ask a lot of questions about the church. And eventually the church was displaced from the, the seat of influence that it had held for over a thousand years. And so we refer to this now as a post-Christian world. Now, why is that significant for us? I think one of the reasons is, is because it's difficult for us to understand that when, uh, when, when the world changes, it's uncomfortable for us. It's unsettling for us. We, we feel like maybe our footing isn't quite as stable and we're not quite sure what to do. I think that's what Daniel and his friends were feeling. That's what the people that were exiled and sent to Babylon were feeling. But I think that's something we can relate to and we feel, to, we feel as well. In fact, as I talk to people more, to, more than any time in my life, I find people that just, they aren't quite sure where they fit. They aren't quite sure where they fit in terms, of, uh, in terms of our society. They aren't quite sure where they fit in terms of their church involvement. Uh, but there, there's a lot of questions because they see things and think, man, I, I feel like there's a lot of this I agree with, but there's things I don't feel comfortable with out there as well. And I'm not quite sure where I'm supposed to call home. So what we get to when we begin to think about this and why this is important is people have been saying this was gonna happen for a long time. In fact, I taught a class about 20 years ago that was called Being Christian in a Postmodern World. And we don't use postmodernism as much, we say post-Christian, but we could see the, we could see the ripples coming that we're, going to, that we're going to create this and make this happen. But oftentimes what happened was we just ignored them. It reminded me of, I was thinking this week of, uh, played high school football and remember there was a game when I played and we were playing against a guy that ended up playing in a Super Bowl and was, ended up winning a Super Bowl. We were playing against him and, and in, the, in practice all week long, coaches said, look, if you run a curl route, and in a curl route's where you run out seven yards and you turn back around, come back to the ball and the quarterback throws it to you and you're hoping to just get that six or seven yards and maybe break a little extra, but really it's a, it's a possession thing you're supposed to do. So he said, look, if you catch the curl route, that guy will light you up so you better spin outside. Do not turn in, turn out, or you're gonna be in trouble. And so we came to game day, and I remember going in that game, we were kind of late in the game, it was an important deal. I think it was third and five, third and six, and I'm running a seven-yard route, so I'm scared that if I catch it, what if I come back too far and we don't get the first down at a critical juncture of the game? So I run the curl route, and I turn, and the ball's on the way, and I think, I remember what the coach said, turn out, but I think, and if I turn out, I might lose the first down. So I catch it and I turn back in. And a millisecond later, <laughs> right up under his, the crown of his helmet, right up under the chin strap. Um, and my head snaps back. We got to film a little bit later the next day. And I remember coach, he just rewound that about five times so everyone could just see it. Like, <laughs> you know, just replayed it over and over and just said, Lawrence, what did I tell you all week long? Turn out or you're gonna get lit up. And he was like, why didn't you turn out? I'm like, I don't know, coach. I had no answer. I think that's the way the church oftentimes, or the church has, has acted in this as well. We saw the warning signs. We saw the things coming. We saw the hints that things were gonna hit us in the face if we didn't do something different. But the church didn't adapt. The church didn't change. The church didn't offer anything new. And so, man, we have taken a punch in the face. And so here's what I know for us. And that can feel intimidating for us as we think about where we are. But I also want you to know, 
I think this is one of the greatest opportunities that the church has had in my lifetime and in, in many, many years. And so as we look at this, here's what I, first thing I wanna talk about today is I wanna talk about the opportunity of challenging times. Do you know, God often uses challenging times to get the attention of his people, to wake them up, to, to allow them to kind of get stunned into seeing what really is. And I think that's what I see here is that, that when God oftentimes sends trials or troubles our way, it's meant to get our attention so that we begin to assess what's really going on. And that we, we, we oftentimes talk about here that the goal of our life is to know God and know ourselves. And perhaps nothing can show us and reveal to us more of ourselves than trials and tests and temptations. When we are uncomfortable, or I'm sorry, when we're comfortable, we, we tend to become prideful and self-dependent. When, when things are easy, we tend to think, oh, I got this. Uh, I don't have much to worry about. This doesn't feel very difficult. But when troubles come and difficulty comes our way, oftentimes it shows us where our strength really lies and where our weakness really lies. It shows us where our blind spots are and where our hopes, where we've really placed our hopes. So troubles and trials can open our eyes so that we can really see what we're really looking to to save us and what we're really looking to for our significance and what we're really putting the weight of our lives upon. And sometimes trials shake the foundation so that we are awakened to something different. Richard Lovelace says this, he says, many American churches are in effect paying their pastors to keep them safe from the real God. I think one of the things we, we don't think, we, we, we've kind of created this idea that God's job is to keep us comfortable and to keep us happy. But when I look at scriptures, you don't see that to be the reality of the way in which God works. In fact, in Daniel 1, when we start this, this, uh, this, this study, one of the things it says is the Lord is the one who gave Israel, uh, the Israelites into Babylon's hands. That in fact, it was the Lord who gave them to Babylon, that this was a part of God's sovereign plan. We're gonna see that in Jeremiah as well, that God, somebody, God didn't just allow this to happen, but God intended for this to happen for the good of Babylon and for the good of his people and to bring about a revival or awakening of his people. Sometimes God breaks through the charade of our religiosity to wake us up. And in the history of the church, we tend to call those times revival. Tim Keller has this to say about revival. He says, revival is when a group of people who on the whole think they already know the gospel discover that they do not really or fully know it. And by embracing the gospel, they cross over into living faith. When this happens in an extensive way, an enormous release of energy comes. The non-church see this and they're attracted by the transformed life of the Christian community as it grows into its calling to be a sign of the kingdom, a beautiful alternative to the human society without Christ. That somehow when, we, when God gets our attention and we wake up and we think, man, this thing I thought I had a, a full grasp of, maybe I didn't understand it as deeply and as fully as I thought I did. And whenever that happens and there's awakening, our eyes are opened and we move out in a step of faith and trust it, there's a living faith that, take the, the, that begins to stir our hearts in a new way. And when that happens in a group of people, what, what Keller's saying is that there's, a, there, there's an excitement and there's an energizing and a motivating factor that takes place within that group of people. And for a watching world, they look in and they see changed lives and they think, wow, 
There's something different going on there. In that society, that community, and that people that are built around the person of Jesus Christ, there's something different that's happening that isn't happening anywhere else. And sometimes I think God sends travels and trials our way because we look so much like everyone else. He just goes, man, I've got to stir up the water and break up the, the junk here so that we can see something fresh emerge. And what we call that is revival. And so I think when challenging times come, the first thing I want you to see today is there is an opportunity in challenging times. There's an opportunity in challenging times. But there's also, I think whenever we begin to think about this and we think about what we can learn from Daniel and learn from what it, from Daniel's kind of operation in a pluralistic pagan world and how he functions there. Um, really, I think we're asking the question of how do, we, how do we also then live in the midst of changes and challenges in, in, the, in a world where we are, at, we are outsiders, where we are no longer in the position of primary influence and where things feel really different and new. And that really points us to the complexity of challenging times. So first we talked about the opportunity of challenging times. Here what I want us to talk about is the complexity of challenging times. Now, remember this situation was new for, the, for Daniel and for his friends as well. They, they were used to living in a world, God, through, God told Abraham that he's gonna give him a promised land and that, that he's going to uh, take care of them as a people that, and eventually they find their way in this land. They were supposed to clean it out so that it was purely just theirs. They actually failed in that, which led them to a lot of trouble. But this land was predominantly theirs. There was a king who ruled over it all and, and ruled under and by the hand of God. And they lived according to God's law. They lived according to the, the, the 10 commandments and all of the law and the code that God had prescribed. There was a system of worship that was there. They had common customs. Uh, they had a shared history. Everyone, when they talked to them, they would have known who Moses and who Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they would have known who King David was. They would have had the shared history of stories. They would have known the songs that they had learned, the psalms that they sang as they marched up to Jerusalem for worship. They would have known the kosher eating laws. They would have had similar customs, had similar dress. They had similar festivals and holidays. And so because all that was the same, they were, felt very comfortable. But now they were a long ways from those days. Now they lived in Babylon under a foreign king, under, uh, in, in a world that had kind of become a hodgepodge in a multicultural pluralistic hodgepodge of lots of different cultures and lots of different peoples. And as they'd taken over all these nations, they had brought in all these elites and they'd mixed them all together and gone through this process of re-education and were trying to bring them all around to a different way of seeing the world. So now they're in a diverse world with various backgrounds and belief systems, morality and everything else. And when things begin to change like that, man, it can become uncomfortable, can't it? When we tend to either be angry or fearful, and maybe we're a little bit schizophrenic and we're kind of both and just on different days. Like we go from one to the other and back and we're not really sure where we are. We tend to, to one day feel optimistic and then one day feel pessimistic and uh, we're kind of all over the place. And really what we see for them was that they were all over the place too. Uh, in fact, they react strongly to the scenario in which they find themselves. And we don't have time to go there now, but if you look at Psalm 137, one of the most horrific passages in all the Bible, it's a, a guy who's crying out to God in frustration because he's been taken off into exile. He's being mocked by the people that, are, uh, that, that have taken him off and 
And what he's doing is he's pouring out his anger and disgust for everything that's happened and crying out for justice. And he's saying, God, how, when are you going to do to them what they did to us? Because they eradicated their city. They, they, they destroyed children and babies in that city. They burned down the temple and raised it to the ground. It was awful. And there's a psalmist that is in his anger against what has happened, is crying out and saying, God, someone needs to do something. And blessed is the man who does to them what they did to us. So you see this anger. You also see this other, uh, other kind of extreme of people that just kind of put their head in the sand. And Jeremiah 28, a false prophet or preacher preaches. And as he does, he's, he tells people, he goes, don't worry about it. We're gonna go there. We'll just hang out for a couple years two years max, we'll be back in Jerusalem. God's gonna take care of it. It's all gonna be okay and we're all gonna go home. So just don't assimilate, don't learn anything, don't invest here. Just keep yourselves protected and separate from them. And in two years time, we're gonna go all the way back home. So you kind of get these two extremes. One's hyper-pessimistic, one's over-optimistic, but there's this diversity of kind of anger and, uh, and hope that, that is coming out because they're unsettled. They're not sure what to do in this complex world in which they live. So here's why I want us to look at Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29, and I know that is a lot of background to work through and a lot of history. You didn't know you were going to history class today, did you? Um, some of you are going back to school and it's okay. Jeremiah 29, God is going to speak and he's gonna give a direction to all the people that are in exile. He's writing a letter through the prophet Jeremiah to the people of exile. Jeremiah is gonna deliver that letter to them and say, here's how you are to relate in a world that's unbelieving, in a world that feels new, in a world that feels different, in a world that feels unsettling. Here's what I want you to do. And so Jeremiah 29, we're gonna see that, that played out. So let's start in verse four. Verse four says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give, daughter, give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there. Do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets or your diviners uh, who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams they dream for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you to exile. So a ton of stuff here. But I love where God, how God addresses directly the things that they're facing. God is speaking to them two things here. One, he's speaking to them a word of comfort. And two, he's speaking to them a word of instruction. He's given them first a word of comfort. You notice what he says, to all the exiles whom I have sent from, into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. God says, this wasn't an accident. 
It wasn't because I was weak. It wasn't because my promises weren't true. I told you this was gonna happen. And when you disobeyed and you walked away from me, I am the one who sent you. In fact, this, uh, this, this phrase, I, whom I have sent, could be translated, whom I have carried into exile. It's not passive. It's actually incredibly active. It's not something that just says, I allowed you to be taken away. He said, no, I carried you into exile. Why is that comforting? Because it means it's a part of God's plan. It means it's not accidental. It means that, um, that, that God is still very much active in the world. Sometimes it feels for us when things don't seem to be going our way as though things are out of control or as though that God is no longer in charge. But here we see God is still very much in charge. Friends, the, the wheels have not fallen off the universe. Our creator is still in charge. And that's important for us to realize. When we have challenging times in our lives, it does not mean that God is unaware or that he's at a loss of what to do with it. He's not confused. He's not, it's not that his hands are tied. It's not that he's wringing his hands in heaven going, oh, I hope they're okay. In fact, what God says here is, this is going to be hard, but I sent you there for your good and for their good. And we're gonna see that God is going to use this to get their attention. He's gonna use it to wake them up, to bring about a revival of the people. Do you notice that it says in verse 13, the incredible change that's gonna take place in their spiritual life? So from this nation that we know from other scriptures had become sexually immoral, had become unfaithful, had begun to worship idols, had begun to, uh, or stopped worshiping in the ways in which they prescribed, whose beliefs were really confused with all sorts of uh, kind of mixture of other religions. This nation that lived that way, you notice what it says in verse 12, God says, then you will call upon me and you will come and you will pray to me and I will hear you and you will seek me and find me when? When you seek me with all your heart. I mean, do you see the purifying effect that this experience is gonna have on God's people? It says, you who have begun to acquiesce and give in in all kinds of ways, I'm gonna purify you so that you seek me with all your heart through this experience. Then he goes on. And what we see is uh, th that he's calling them to, uh, to really shape their, their hearts for the, for the people as well. You notice he says um, that they are to, uh, that it will cause them to pray, that they will seek God more fully. And God says it'll bring about a full restoration of his people, that eventually he will use this to prosper them, to increase their hope, to increase their future. So God's message to them should be comforting. It should be something that actually gives them a sense of confidence as they walk into this, but don't be deceived. There is no easy solution. There is no quick fix that takes place here. And then, you know, sometimes we, we like to look for a quick fix. Like any of you just go, man, I wanna find an easy way out in this. I remember one time we were playing with my kids and um, you guys ever play rock, paper, scissors? You kind of do the rock, paper, scissors shoot and you do, you know, rock, scissors, paper, one wins over the other. We were playing that with my kids one time. And as we did, uh, my son, Mike, kept losing and he didn't like to lose very much. So one of these games, we did it and we said, rock, paper, scissors, shoot. And he goes, rock, paper, scissors. He goes, God. <laughs> and we just laughed because we're like, well, I guess that just kind of wins over everything, right? And I think sometimes we spiritually want to operate that way too. We just look at the complexity of the world in which we live. We look at the difficulty of all the things that are there. And we just think, can we just scream God and just, it'll all go away? I think that's what we want. We want a quick fix. God comforts them by saying, look, 
I am in this. My hand is in this. I carried you into this place because it's gonna do something good for you. But then he stops and he says, but it's not gonna be easy and it's not gonna be quick. You know, it's the solution he gives them. He tells them, he says, settle down, build houses. Any of you built a house and talk about a stressful thing? Like that can be a stressful thing. It's a first world luxury, but it can be a stressful thing. But he's saying, don't set up a short-term tent. Build a house, make a life there. Plan to stay there in that place. Then he says, plant gardens. Uh, I'm not much of a gardener, but I think this says something about time. Because I'm pretty sure you can't plant something and expect it to grow overnight. I, I think there's an expectation that seasons are gonna have to pass and that whatever you have planted and nurtured is going to have to well up over time or grow up over time. And you have to allow time to pass before you reap the produce of the garden. God is saying to them, you need to plan to be here for the long haul. What he's saying is, don't live with one eye to, to the old glory days and think that you can just restore what used to be and don't live with one eye to a quick fix that just says, hey, God's gonna just rescue us and it's all gonna be, it's all gonna be really clean and tidy in a short amount of time. In fact, God says of those false prophets who are saying, you don't need to worry, it's gonna handle itself really quickly. There's a quick, easy answer. God says, they're lying to you. This is gonna be a hard thing. This is gonna take time. Don't think, don't be naive about the way it's going to work. Then he says, but don't reduce yourself. He says, you need to continue to multiply. Meaning, take wives, have, have your sons marry, have your daughters marry, multiply. What he's saying is, all the good of marital bliss, you should enjoy and continue to be fruitful and fill uh, the earth as you were commanded. And so they are called to continue to, to live the life that God has given them. But you notice, as you get into this in verse seven, there's a big word there, a little three, big three-letter word. It just says, but, in verse seven, because all of that sounds okay, right? I mean, I can, I can live in a house, I can plant some gardens, I can continue to, to have kids and grandkids and do life as normal, and all that's about me, and all that's God saying, look, you're gonna be okay, just live your life there. But verse seven, God's gonna press in on them a little bit more. Verse seven, he says, but, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you. And that feels a little bit harder, doesn't it? See, if I'm hearing this message, that's where I just wanna hit pause. This, like, I'm gonna hit the pause button for a minute. God, so the, the city where you sent me, meaning the, the enemies of our people, those who don't believe what we believe, the unbelieving rulers, the ones who have morality that doesn't look like ours, the ones who have customs that doesn't look like ours, the ones who have diversity that we don't agree with in terms of their value system and their structures, and you want me to seek the welfare of the city. God, it's one thing for you to say, build a house, plant some gardens, grow your family. It's another thing for you to say, seek the good of the people that you perceive to be your enemies. And as believers in an unbelieving world, seek the good of those who are around you. See, that's the mission that God gave to the believers in this unbelieving city. He says, seek its welfare, seek its goodness, seek its wholeness, seek its shalom, meaning it's a word we often use for peace meaning the, the welfare, the, the holistic goodness of the place. That's the, the spiritual, the relational, the physical, the, the, um, the, the kind of holistic good of the people. Notice that he says, pray for the city. Pray, for, pray to me on behalf of the city. And it's hard to hate someone you're wholeheartedly praying for, isn't it? 
It's hard to condemn and look down upon someone that you're genuinely praying for their welfare, that God would do good to them. God wants them to pray. So what's the big idea? God's telling them they need to have a vision for the city and how they're going to be a blessing to the city. God wants them, he's telling them that they're called to invest their full lives there to make a difference in the world. Now, this sounds like a good idea in general, but it's not easy to do in society, isn't it? Is it? See, if we don't have a thoughtful response for how we're gonna operate in a world that we often disagree with, we, we're gonna, what's gonna happen is we're gonna tend to be reactive in the way we operate. If we don't have a plan for how we're going to intentionally live in the midst of a world that often disagrees with us, we're gonna, we're gonna default to our personality, to our circumstances, to other things, to react against it and to operate in a different kind of a way. So here's, here's what I wanna do for us. Our situation, uh, I think it's important to say, isn't identical to Daniel's. Our situation is not exactly the same. We've not kind of gone through some of the things they do, but I think in, so even in that, some of the promises that come to Jeremiah here in Jeremiah 29, those, those specific promises aren't really ours as a nation or ours as the Western church or even ours as the church in general, uh, but I think there are some, some real principles that we can learn from the way in which Daniel interacts, the way in which God encourages his people to interact that's important for us as we think about how we're going to live in challenging times. And so uh, what I wanna do kind of in this last little section here is I want us to talk about our model for challenging times. We talked about our opportunity. We talked about the complexity of challenging times. Now we're gonna talk about our model for challenging times. And I think it's good for us to think about this. See, there's uh, kind of gonna give you just five approaches or models for living as outsiders in a pluralistic or unbelieving world. So our relationship to the world, what should it be? So I'm gonna walk through five of these and I'll just give you a little heads up. I'm gonna give you four that are the wrong ones and then one that's the right one, as preachers tend to do, okay? So let me, uh, let me start off, we're just gonna jump through there. The very first one is attack. Our response to the world around us is we can go into an attack response. This is kind of a militant approach. You know, it's said that we live in, a, in an outrage culture. We're really not the first outrage culture, but we are fairly outrageous in our outrage uh, in the way in which we express that. There's a motivation to an attack response. And by attack response, what I mean is you look at the ones that are out there and you go, man, if you're gonna push against me, I'm gonna push back against you. And so the motivation oftentimes for that is control. And the goal is winning. We're gonna fight like the world fights, but we're gonna win. So if they push back, we're gonna, if they push against us, we're gonna push harder until we overcome. Oftentimes what we see in the way the church does this is it's denouncing the moral decay and the sin of others and fighting against it. We're kind of disgusted by the way in which they live. And there's an underlying kind of danger to that that is a sense of superiority and self-righteousness. That I'm better than you, so I need to dominate you to make sure that the better people's ways went out in our world. It's hard for people to see that the church is a blessing to the city when believers are constantly attacking everyone around them. It's hard for people to believe that we are praying to our, our God who's glorious and sovereign on behalf of the people if all they see from us is attack, attack, attack. It's hard for them to trust that we have something better when all they see is us fighting just like they fight. So the attack response isn't the right one. On the other hand, there's a retreat response. 
Retrieve response is, uh, give you an image here of a turtle, like you're crawling back under your shell. And so this is more, whereas an attack response is driven more by your anger and control, a retreat response is driven more by your fear and the motivation is preservation. I just wanna be okay. And so what the goal of, of the retreat um, kind of approaches is isolation. Now it's interesting because there's a sense of superiority and self-righteousness here too, but instead of attacking, what, it does, what it, this one does is it avoids the other. Instead of attacking the other person, it avoids the other person altogether. And we're just gonna keep ourselves safe. So you think of kind of a medical analogy of uh, someone who's been quarantined. Like, let's just quarantine off all the people that have the, the, the immoral disease and let's put ourselves over here. And as long as we just stay separate from them, man, I'm good. Um, now, here's the thing. As long as you have no engagement with someone, it's gonna be pretty hard for them to believe that you wanna be a blessing to them. It's gonna be pretty hard for them to think that you're praying for the welfare and for their goodness because you really genuinely love them when you wanna have nothing to do with them and want nothing more than to isolate and protect yourself from them. So it's a little bit of a passive approach as opposed to the attack approach, which is more aggressive. But God does some stuff to make us want to change this or to, to realize that this is not the right answer either. And so attack is not the right answer. Retreat's not the right answer. Uh, the third one I wanna give you is tourism. Uh, tourists, want, they kind of want the best of both worlds. And so their, their goal is self-advancement. And so tourists, here's what, what tourists wanna do. They wanna enjoy everything they can get out of this world, but also not lose their identity. And so on the outside, they still keep the forms and the externals of Christianity, but on the inside, they really have adopted all the practices and values and things of the culture in which they live. And so maybe they still preserve some external morality. Uh, and so there's you know, ways in which uh, kind of in the visible morality things like sexuality or drug use or some of these things, they still preserve their Christian image. But on the inside, they've become just as self-centered and greedy and image conscious as everyone in the world around them. And so what they want is they just wanna get it all. Like I wanna take all the good stuff I want from the world, but still try to preserve some of the good stuff that I have from my Christian faith as well. And on the outside, they look different, but the inside and the way in which when you get past the surface, they're just not very distinctive. And so it's hard because they are, they, they are confusing to the world. And so the, when you look at those people, it's hard to see how they wanna be a blessing because so often they operate just like everyone else in the city in which they find themselves. The last one that's on the negative side here is accommodation. Accommodation, notice I use a sponge there. Uh, one who's gonna accommodate, I mean, they're just gonna soak up the world in which they're in. So whatever environment you put them in, they're just gonna soak it up and say, and I'm gonna try to fill myself with as much of this as I can. And so the motivation there is acceptance. Uh, the, the, the goal is blending in. And so they're accepting of the values and the viewpoints of those around them and they just begin to give in. And so at the end of the day, it's hard for us to see any uniqueness to them whatsoever because they look just like the world around them. So what's the last one? Uh, you can guess this is the one I'm gonna, I'm gonna point to and the image is gonna be Jesus. So you know that's the right answer, right? What, is, what, is, what do I think the scriptures call us to do? It's engagement. The, the, the goal here is the incarnation. The motivation's love and the goal is to be a blessing for others. Friends, this is my prayer for us as a church is for how we relate to the world around us, that we would relate to the world around us as Jesus did. In many ways, this is a more difficult path. It requires us to live with a conviction that maintains our distinctiveness as the people of God, 
but to also live with a courageous love that sacrifices for the good of others who may not share our beliefs and our convictions. And so there's a, there's a, a bit of a tension with this one. But you notice it's a call to live amongst our world, that we would learn their language, that we would learn their culture, that we would learn to dialogue with them and to communicate with them. We'd move in and be good neighbors with them. We would be co-workers for them. We would care for the poor alongside them, that we would love those who have broken lives even if they don't agree with us. We want people in our city to say, you know, I'm not sure about their beliefs and what they, what they, some of the things they say, but I don't wanna live in a city without their presence here because they're good for us and they're a good influence in our world. I wanna love, love the city in a way that creates works of art alongside them, that at the same time has conversation on their turf and in their spaces. And yet, here's the trick. We don't lose our distinctiveness as the people of God. That somehow we maintain our convictions about what we're called to, to be. And there's a dance there that I think can be tough but here's the thing I want you to know. For us, there ought to, our faith is strong enough to enable us to do this well. Friends, when you think about your faith, we know, we know where we came from. We know that there is a God of the universe and we are not him. We know what the cost of sin is and we know that there's a rescuer who has come. We know that grace is ours if we will just believe. We understand that there is a word of God that's been given to us to direct our steps. We understand that there is a people of God that God has wed us to. And we know where we're going eventually. And we know that eventually God's gonna make all things right. And so knowing all those things and holding all those things to be true and having a conviction of those things ought to free us up to keep fast our convictions while also living in courageous love to be kind to a world that's disintegrating and falling apart. That's the call that I think we have. We wanna be uncompromising about our faith, but courageous enough to believe we can invest in this world and make it a better place. So let me end with this. None of us will perfectly do this. Daniel and his friends will not perfectly do this, and we won't either. But there's one who has done this perfectly. His name is Jesus. And through the incarnation, he became one of us. In fact, John 1 says it this way. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glories of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Truth is conviction. Grace is courageous love. And in Jesus, he became one of us. He spoke our language. He lived in our world. He practiced the way, the things we do. He dressed like we dressed. He he breathed the air we breathed. He worked like we worked. He ate like we ate. He did all the things that we did or that we do in order to make a way of salvation for us. And at the cross of Jesus, truth of having to deal with our sin met grace, which is God's love that overcame and provided a way for us. And through the cross, those two came together. And so Jesus is ultimately our model. Friends, when you think about our vision as a church, we want to make authentic disciples of Jesus who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want you to be the presence of Christ in your neighborhood, you to be the presence of Christ in your workplace, you to be the presence of Christ in your schools, you to be the presence of Christ in the parks of our city, you to be the presence of Christ in the places where you shop, so that our world looks and says, there's something about those people that, that are all about Jesus that's different 
and they're good and I want to know more about him. Let me pray for us. Father, would you help us to trust you as one who is full of grace and truth, whose son is full of grace and truth. And by your spirit, would you work in our lives and in our midst and in our church that we might bring glory and honor to your name, that we might be light to a city, that we might engage our world for good. Father, we pray in Christ's name, amen.